Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Alas, I had turned loose into the world a depraved wretch whose delight was carnage and misery. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today we are getting started in the Halloween spirit, I think. Yes. Is, is, is that is that safe to say? Yes. We always want to try and do something a little bit on theme for the month of October. Last year we had the lovely Craftians and Goblin Archives on to talk about different horror themed stuff. And this year we're going to be talking a little bit about Hollywood monsters. We're going with the trope of some of classic Hollywood monsters. And I think this week we're starting off with one of my favorites and probably one of my favorite D&D monster subtypes as well. Constructs and golems. Absolutely. Yeah, I am also a huge fan of constructs. Constructs get criminally underused in D&D, mainly because a lot of people, I think, don't really explore fully what you can do with a construct. Absolutely. And for me, I like the construct because it is very much that whole be careful what you wish for kind of thing. The construct through most of like media and lore will obey its orders perfectly. The fact that you were unclear or left some gray area about what your orders or the instructions were is not the construct's fault. The construct's just doing what it's programmed to do. Yes, the construct will follow the orders that you give it. <laughs> Always. And so uh, we're going to go through, we're going to explore some very famous construct types. Uh, we're going to talk about them. We're probably going to discuss how to bring said constructs to the table as well. Because again, these can be a very vibrant and interesting foe to put on your table. Especially if you run a high charisma party, this is a good counter for that. Right. Or parties that rely heavily on marshals, yeah. on marshal classes they are also going to potentially run into issues dealing with constructs. Absolutely. So constructs are one of those strange fringe creature types that, you know, fall in kind of with elementals and undead. Those, those three together kind of have some similar vibes and some overlap between them. I can get that because they're fundamentally unnatural. I mean, even with the elementals, they are not bestial. They're not human they are not prime i mean they are primal but they're not they're not organic they are not organic yes that that's probably what i'm going for yeah yeah and so yeah you have these things same the undead they are technically organic but they are a corrupted form of life so they don't count where constructs are just pure creations of hubris you know and i love that and anytime you read any kind of construct lore hubris and the overextending of one knowledge you know what they say in Jurassic Park they were so interested if they could they didn't ask if they should you know is one of those great quotes right and especially between constructs and undead there are a lot of places where the line between the two is muddled oh very fuzzy yes you know whether it is undead or a construct so things like flesh golems and bone golems they are technically constructs but they are made from animated flesh. Right. And so there is that crossover there, that muddling of types, Absolutely. if you will. And then on the other side, going way back in D&D, you've got the Eidolon. The Eidolon is a protector spirit. It is usually the spirit of a devout follower of a particular deity or other powerful entity whose spirit is bound to a sacred place to act as that place's protector. And one of the things that they can do in order to help defend the space is that they can inhabit a sacred statue within that location and basically pilot it like a giant mech. Nice. And that does reference a lot to the original golem lore going into like the historical lore, the first, like the earliest golems, it was a Jewish folklore. The earliest record we can find is about 1830-ish. And it was that this rabbi had built basically this mud statue to help defend the Jewish encampment from, you know, pogroms and things like that coming from the Russian side of things like that. I forget who the uh, Russian leader was at the time. But he had built this golem and each Friday night he would take the paper out of its mouth because he'd write instructions and set it in his mouth. That's how the golem was activated. And he would take this out of its mouth on Friday 
to respect the Sabbath. And there's different versions. One is that the golem fell in love and was repudiated and kind of went on a rampage. The other one is that the rabbi forgot to take the paper or the instructions out of its mouth on Friday. And so it was breaking its own laws on the Sabbath and started going on this huge destructive streak. But again, it was just following its orders. But it was initially a religious guardian of sorts made by a cleric or a priest to guard his home village. Yeah. And to touch a little bit on that sort of blending between construct and elemental, there is a monster from third edition, I believe, from one of the later monster manuals like Monster Manual 2 or Monster Manual 3, or possibly even the Fiend Folio, called the Nimble Rite. And the Nimble Rite, it's basically a suit of very lightweight armor that has been animated by binding an air elemental to it. Nice, 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 nice. And so they're used as sort of messengers and as assassins and anything where you would need that stereotypical anime run across the rooftops <laughs> sort of thing. That's what you would use a nimble right for. Okay, that makes sense. And that is a construct. Yeah. Um, it is powered by an elemental but it is a construct. Right. So we're talking about these constructs. And so kind of going through these constructs and golems, and golems themselves are classified as constructs. They are going to be a created life form. So anything cybernetic, anything like living clay statue, clay monster, stone monster, anything like that. You could probably even have constructs out of wood. Most often in your steampunk games or your kind of like near industrial age, they're going to be like clockwork golems, things like that. Right. So again, if you're not familiar with these, why you want these on your table or what they do, generally they're pretty heavily armored. They generally have a fairly high armor class or a really high constitution score. They're going to be fairly beefy. They're going to follow anything from simple to complex rules, but they can't be persuaded. You can't reason with them. You can't, I mean, you have that one bard that wants to deduce everything and that is how they solve every problem. Drop a construct. It's not going to care. Someone who wants to threaten everything, drop a construct. It's not going to care. It's just this big blank wall of punishment on the table. And again, <laughs> they can be a lot of fun depending on which type of golem or construct you want to use. A lot of these can reassemble or repair themselves over time. So now you have this continually, unless you like put it down for good, you think the battle's over and there it is just coming right back together again. Right. And basically any inanimate material can be used to make a golem. Yeah. I mean, you could have a druidic order making them out of wood. Yeah. You have clay golems, you have stone golems, you have iron golems. As I mentioned earlier, you have bone and flesh golems. There were uh, golems that were made out of dragon flesh. You can have glass golems. Ooh. Gargoyles. Gargoyles are a very traditional form of construct. Yes. Basically coming from the European lore that you put these grotesques on the corners of the buildings to keep the foul spirits away from the places. And that ended up morphing into tales about, you know, the gargoyles would come to life and like punish evildoers and such. You know, those are examples of the sorts of constructs that you can run into, but your spectrum is as limited as your imagination. Absolutely. I mean, you can have, I've done cobblestone golems Ooh. where the party be walking down the street and then all of a sudden the cobblestones of the street rise up because they decided that they were going to be pugnacious today <laughs> and they were going to pick a fight with the town guards and the town guards just called on the golem and the street just stood up from underneath the party and started laying into them. That'd be a wonderful surprise for a party. Yeah, just surprised you're fighting the road. <laughs> I mean, there was a story that I read forever ago. There's a party where the DM was getting tired of the fact that they never checked doors for traps and locks. They would just break down the door. <laughs> Even if the door was unlocked, they didn't care. They just sent the barbarian through the door. As you do. As you do. And so they come up to this dwarven stronghold and they're trying to get in and they knock on the door because there's nobody standing outside and a voice tells them basically to shove off and they decide to 
break down the door. And so the barbarian hits the door and the door hits back because the entire front facade, this 30 foot tall, 60 foot wide double gate brass plated facade was just a giant golem. And the two big doors basically were like shields. And so it comes to life and it stands up and it just slaps (laughs) them around. (laughs) I absolutely love it. And that reminds me again, not quite a full construct, but if you've ever played the first fable and you had those magical doors where they had the face and they had, you know, some Mm -hmm. intelligence behind those again, another form of construct, you know, it was an intelligence implanted into an animate object. So you can go through and there is a lot of traditional and very famous examples of golems and constructs. We have talked about flesh golems, so I think we need to talk probably about the most famous, but Frankenstein's monster himself was, you know, the first sci-fi and really almost as early as the Jewish pogrom golem, but still just a little bit later, but it was also inspiration for Frankenstein. But this was, you know, for those that are completely unaware of the story, a doctor, a scientist who was trying to figure out the secret of life creates life from dead flesh, and now it is an undead creation. And he gets terrified about it. He runs it away. He runs away from it. And then this thing is kind of left wondering, why am I created? And there's a whole lot to break down in the story. But the fact that you could have this undead flesh creation, and again, you have these wonderful stat blocks you can get from D&D and from the books that you can put in, that you can have this monster going through. And I mean, going through it and reading literature, Frankenstein himself, or at least Frankenstein's monster, and Frankenstein himself would be wonderful BBEGs for your table if you wanted to run just a quick one or two shot. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And Frankenstein's monster is a great example of a construct that is capable of learning, an intelligent construct. Yes. Another example to take a very D&D example would be the Warforged. Yes. From the Eberron setting. Because they are sentient, they are self-aware, they are capable of learning. Despite the fact that they are constructs, they were built for a purpose. Yes. And so this provides a way to have a construct that isn't so one-dimensional, that isn't bound to a very strict set of rules, a very strict series of programs, basically. This is something that can adapt. This is something that can learn. This is something that can change its tactics depending on what it needs in any given situation. Right. Now, as a DM, this would absolutely be a DM call. But if you are running a Frankenstein's monster on your table, especially as your BBEG or just even like a mid-level boss, for lack of a better term, and your cleric decides to use turn undead, while this is technically an undead creature, it's also a construct. Should turn undead work on this? It's alive. It is alive. It's alive! <laughs> yeah, it's yes. not dead. It was dead. dead. Right. But that, that's the whole point of... That is the entire point of the story, is that it was dead and is no longer dead. Right. And now that it is alive, it has to come to terms with what does it mean to be alive, especially after it has been dead. Yes. And, you know, I don't think that they ever I don't know that Mary Shelley ever actually truly addressed this because it's been so long since I've actually read the actual text of Frankenstein. As In the book, that is one thing she does not address. No. Does Frankenstein's monster have any memories from its life before it was reanimated. Oh, that would be so great for either a story or even if you put this on your table. But you have people that sometimes when they receive like organ donations to save their life and they have what they call donor memories and they have like memories or dreams or cravings that the previous donor has had and somehow those are transferred to the organ recipient. So what if the monster in this case is dealing with these conflicting donor memories as it's living its life? And so maybe part of it was a mage and part of it was a thief and part of it was a paladin. And it's trying with those conflicting things, the creature itself would be conflicted and how it would react would be conflicted. But it's trying to sort those out and figure out its own way through. I think you can make a very relatable character with this and saying that's not outright evil. It's just fractured because of its construction. Right. And again, this is something where having an intelligent construct, you can do this. Yes. I don't think that having just your default one intelligence operating on programs construct is going to have that. 
No, absolutely not. If I was going to build Frankenstein's monster on the table, I would give it at least an eight intelligence, depending on if you want to kind of go from the early Universal Studios tropes where they took the abnormal or the AB normal brain. And so it was not fully intelligent to something more like Mary Shelley's, where it was as intelligent as the doctor questionably, and it could think and could reason. It just didn't understand why it was created and was trying to find somewhere to reach and reason with, but it was also hideous. So it knew it had to hide. Absolutely. Yeah. And then if we want to go a different route, whenever we're talking about constructs, the other big construct that we think of, or at least that I think of whenever I'm thinking of mass media is the Terminator. Yeah, I got you to watch the Terminator series this week. (laughs) Yeah, I finally got around to watching Terminator, Terminator 2, and I got some I got some ideas, folks. Oh, my. I I did, especially from T2. Yes, T2 is aged amazingly well. Yeah, it's surprising how good it was Yeah, for a movie that was made in 97. 97, 91. Are you sure? T2 was made in 91. Okay, what am I thinking of then? I don't know. I don't know. Matrix was in that. No, no. Matrix was 98. Uh, Matrix was 98, 99. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Huh. Yeah. Oh, but, well. but T1 um, was 91. Or okay. T2 was 91. Uh, 87. Yeah, T- was 84. 84, 84 was, was Terminator okay. 1. Gotcha. But yeah, so the whole thing about the Terminator is, you know, it is this metallic robot, basically, with an organic shell on the outside of it. So the Terminators are capable of blending in as human because they have the human flesh on the outside of them. They're technically cyborgs. Yeah. But they have that metallic endoskeleton and the processors and all of that nonsense. And so you end up having a very tenacious foe in the form of a Terminator and something that can blend in, but doesn't need to blend in. Yeah. Something that is basically impervious to most weapons. Right. And that is another thing that you run into a lot in especially the higher level constructs is that they have resistance or immunity to non-magical weapons. It's a very common element. And then whenever you get into Terminator 2, whenever you have the T-1000 show up where it's basically able to turn itself into silly putty. <laughs> it can smush through anything. It can. There's one point where it flattens itself out and turns itself into the tile floor. Yes. You started talking about your Pebblestone column, that scene where he's out of the tile floor and it's like, that's exactly what I picture. <laughs> yes. The Terminators themselves as constructs, as golems, I really love this because they have several aspects that I really enjoy. One, they are crafted to a point where they're hard to recognize. So that's not like, hey, there's the bad guy, but you have to actually look and try to weigh. So you have that hesitation before attacking. Two, they're self-replicating. And I love this concept of a self-replicating monster. Again, something that's kind of going through, even along the line of the Sorcerer's Apprentice with Mickey, where he shatters all of the broom handles because they're carrying too much water. And they continue to do the job they were inspelled to do, except now there's more of them. And I love that. I get that with Terminator 2. Also with Terminator, you get a lot of that feel kind of corrupted, but with iRobot. And again, these robots were created to, quote, protect humanity and they figure the best way to protect humanity is to literally save humanity from itself therefore we were all on forced lockdown while they run everything behind the scenes or in front and they kind of shove us last to the back in this case the skynet was made as a military defensive tool became self-aware and realized that the threat was humanity both to itself and to us and so therefore it's going to preserve itself because it's intelligent enough to recognize humans as a threat And so bringing these things to a table, this is one thing I've always wanted to do is get something going with these constructs. And now with, you know, where the artificer is an official class or something like that, you could easily have your artificer as the start, maybe not even your BBEG, but the start of this, where he's created this construct. And then the construct has created more constructs and its skill at creating is better than the artificers. And so they become more and more lifelike at visual inspection. And they're still trying to accomplish whatever task they've been given, but they have taken it and misinterpreted that task from what was intended. And now they are on a rampage or they are taking over a town or raising a city or whatever it is. And your party has to go and stop it. Yeah. And there are other approaches that you can do 
as listeners will know, James and I are both fans of Warcraft lore. Oh, absolutely. And there is something in the lore called the Curse of Flesh. So the world of Azeroth, where Warcraft happens, was created by these godlike people called the Titans. And they made their little constructs to basically run the world and make sure that the world didn't get corrupted by the old gods. And they ended up getting corrupted by the old gods. And (laughs) as a result, they transformed from these iron and stone constructs into fleshy creatures. That's where the dwarves and the gnomes came from. They were these titan constructs that were afflicted by the curse of flesh and became living, became mortal. Right. And so, again, these are ways you can bring this out. And so now you can have those constructs being fleshy. And now are they solely following orders? Or are they dealing with now their own internal thoughts? At what point do they start breaking? What point are they just doing their thing? And you can do a lot. Again, you can have a lot of stories built just around constructs themselves, not anything else. Just the magic of creation is kind of awe-sparing by itself. And another thing from D&D that we routinely go back to the plane of Mechanus. Oh, yeah. Mechanus is the plane of constructs. Absolutely. The Modrons come from Mechanus. They're all constructs. The Inevitables come from Mechanus. They're all constructs. You know, the whole thought process, the whole assemblage of Mechanus, it's a bunch of cogs that interlock. It is the epitome of law. What is law if not the precise following of orders by a machine. I have not thought about the inevitables in a while, and I thank you for reminding me of those wonderful, wonderful creatures now self-replicating inevitables. And we have Skynet. (laughs) I mean, basically (laughs) what we're looking at with Skynet, it is essentially a more effective form of the rogue Modron march. Yeah. It is the system has been corrupted by an outside influence And as a result, it is operating outside of normal parameters. I want Skynet Modron so bad now. (laughs) (laughs) And that could also be a very interesting sort of thing to explore is, you know, figuring out why all of these constructs have suddenly shifted the perspective on their programming. Yeah. And again, going back to some older lore, I mean, Orcus was kicking about and you have, you know, uh, where he tried to be the prime. And so that definitely could be an easy and this way you can get more of your regular D&D lore and get some orc battles in there, things like that as well. Orcus was the he's a demon prince of undeath. Right. But isn't he on the um, same? Isn't he on Archeon as well? No, he's not from Akron. Oh, OK. I'm sorry. He's from the Abyss. Oh, the Abyss. OK, I had that mixed. My apologies. But yeah, I mean, you could definitely have that as your thing. So now you could start blending in some planescape. You can definitely get some planes walking in here. And again, I'm very excited for the planescape book to come out. Yeah, that's the only D&D book that I've ordered all year (laughs) after the whole OGL kerfluffle, because Uh, I was just so excited that they were bringing back planescape. Yes. And I really, really hope that it lives up to its potential. Keeping our fingers crossed. I am... I don't think that it will (laughs) just putting that out there. I don't think that it will, but I'm really hoping it does. My fingers crossed. But going through, you said you think you have some ideas of how to bring some fun constructs to the table, especially borrowing from the Terminator series. So how do you envision this hitting the table? All right. So the main thing surrounding bringing something like the Terminator to a D&D table is that It's going to be an intelligent construct. Absolutely. Because it is operating in an environment where it has to adapt in order to perform its function. Okay. It is capable of assessing threats. It is capable of adapting to overcome threats. It is capable of figuring out when it is more efficient to use subterfuge and go around a threat rather than you know, just go through a threat. Okay. But in many cases, Terminators are not bound by any sort of morality. Absolutely no. You know, if there is even the slightest chance that you could compromise its mission, it's just going to kill you. 
Yeah. The Terminators are, I'd lean them towards chaotic evil. Um, oh, lawful or, evil. Or lawful you, evil. Lawful evil? Okay. Absolutely. Okay. They're, they're constructs. They're following orders. They, they are, are lawful. Okay. They are following orders, but only to the orders of the creator. Any law otherwise given is... Okay, I could see lawful evil. Okay. Evil because we are viewing it from human morality. Yes. Okay, no, that is fair. From its own morality standpoint, it, it would be lawful none. neutral. Yeah, okay. It is following orders. It is going to do whatever is necessary for it to carry out its orders. Okay. No, I, I get that. But yeah, morality-wise, again, law, good, evil, bad, it is just interested in accomplishing whatever the mission is. Yeah, and that can be exemplified really in that last sequence in Terminator one, you know, where this is spoilers for a 40 year old movie (laughs) where they're in the assembly plant and the Terminator has finally gotten Sarah Connor in the building and the soldier that has come back in time to protect her from the Terminator has blown up the Terminator but the top half of the Terminator is still crawling after her. Yeah, that is such a great scene. The Terminator is going to get her. (laughs) It doesn't care how. It can see Sarah Connor. Its goal is to kill Sarah Connor. It is going to crawl after Sarah Connor, and Sarah Connor ends up leading it through an industrial crusher, and whenever she flops out the other side, turns it on, and crushes the Terminator to defeat it. As it's reaching for her, yeah. As it's, yeah, as, as it's reaching for her. That is the extent to which it is bound by its programming. Yeah, it has no self-preservation instinct at all. Well, minimal. Very minimal. I will recant that. It does have some self-preservation instinct, but if it can accomplish its mission otherwise, it will not save its life at the expense of the mission. No. Yeah. And I think the Terminator had that understanding that by going back into the past, it was so technologically advanced that it was effectively indestructible. And so it didn't need to really deal with any of the repercussions of recklessness. Yeah. Because, I mean, it walks into a police station and, you know, just guns its way through an entire police station. Right. Yeah, it totally does the whole murder hobo thing. (laughs) Yeah, he just walks in. He doesn't try to take cover, you know, (laughs) it doesn't make any efforts to avoid getting shot. And, you know, jumping ahead to Terminator 2, that was the ultimate downfall of the T-1000. Right. Was that it got in that mindset that it didn't need to preserve itself. And so when Arnold shoots it with a grenade and the grenade gets stuck in it and then detonates and rips it apart, that is just the amount of trauma necessary to incapacitate it long enough to dump it into the foundry full of molten steel and destroy it. That said, you know, a grenade detonating inside of the thing was not enough to kill it. No. Just inconvenience it for a little bit. Yeah. Neither was basically giving it a shower in liquid nitrogen. It was enough to shatter it. But like I said, it's a big puddle of mercury. It just ended up drawing itself back together and reconstituting itself. So, yeah, if we were going to bring one of these to the tables, the things I would bring up, definitely intelligence. So it definitely needs an intel of 10, probably 10 to 12, I would say. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say that for something as advanced as the T-1000, it would have at least human intelligence. At least, yeah. It might have slightly above human intelligence. It is a prototype. It is untested technology, but it is very advanced technology. And what we see from Arnold from the Terminator throughout the course of Terminator 2 is that they are capable of learning. They are capable of taking input from their environment and adapting future techniques to that new data. Yes. Now, with wisdom, I would be inclined to give them a slightly higher wisdom. Again, maybe a 12 to a 14, because they do have like the infrared vision. They have slightly heightened hearing. That said, we could just also give the construct dark vision as well, would cover that fairly well. But again, they did have, I would say, extrasensory abilities, but they did have heightened sensory abilities compared to the humans they encountered. Absolutely. Yeah, they 
I mean, they had infrared. Yeah. Every so often, the camera would cut to the infrared view from the Terminator's eyes. Right. And infrared is dark vision. <laughs> so, yes. Right. So, again, yeah. would you give them the extra bonus to their wisdom score so they had better self perception, or would you? parse that back and just give them dark vision i mean i would increase their perception absolutely okay. i would increase their wisdom score i may even go so far as to give them proficiency in perception yes. because they have this suite of technological sensors that would allow them to increase their reaction times increase their sensory abilities increase their processing abilities be able to determine what sounds were faster okay yeah, I'm with you on that. So my next one's going to be an easy one. Strength score. Definitely. I'm seeing a 14 to 16 on strength score. A superhuman. It needs to be superhuman. Yeah. Okay. And this is also going to depend on what sort of challenge level you're looking for. Yes. If this is going to be something that you're going to be uh, tormenting a lower level party with, you know, say something that you're going to first expose your party to around level three, four, five that you expect to terrorize them with kind of like a nemesis from resident evil two, okay. where if you don't <laughs> go fast enough, he catches you if you wanted to do it sort of that way and then have it where by the time they hit say level nine or 10, they're finally strong enough to really confront it. Then, you know, I would shoot for a, CR 8 to 10 on that. And again, if you had a particularly clever party or, you know, characters that are min-maxing to an excessive degree, they would be able to take that challenge earlier. Yeah. But giving it maybe even up to a CR 11 or 12. Ooh, okay. if, you, if you had like a CR 12 and then you pitted a party of ninth level or 10th level characters against it especially if it's a four-person party that would be a difficult fight but if it is a solo fight very much a manageable fight not impossible but definitely a challenge absolutely now, yeah now the one i think you're going to balk at but i would i would come close to insisting that constitution score i want to see a 22 a 24 maybe even a 26 that constitution score has to be like absolutely to the stars Oh, yeah. Just because these things were so like, no matter what, they shrugged off everything. And as a construct, you're not going to bleed. You have all of these, you know, resistances already. But that constitution score that you're just moving no matter what. Yeah, just you have to have draconic or higher for that constitution score. Yeah. And going back to third edition, in third edition, constructs didn't have a constitution score. Yeah. They just straight up didn't have a value for constitution. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Because they were immune to anything that required a fortitude save. Yeah. I mean, anything that would affect the constitution of a creature just didn't work on a construct. Right. But what I'd want that constitution for is if you level up your villains or your bad guys, you know, every time this thing leveled and you're getting a plus five, plus six to your, what, a D10 or D12 die roll anyway. So, I mean, yeah, because again, this thing is going to soak damage. Oh, yes. Again, going back to third edition. All constructs had a D10 hit die. Yeah. Just baseline. It didn't matter what size it was. It didn't matter what level it was. All of them had a D10 hit die. In fifth edition, your hit die is determined by the size of the creature. So if it were a medium construct, it would be a D8. But I would totally be okay with cranking that up to a D10 or a D12. Absolutely. You know, depending on the chosen application of this particular construct. So like if I were doing say something in the CR 18 to 20 range, something for a high level party, something Ooh. that is definitely going to be very threatening, I would absolutely give it like a 23, 24, 25 con score without hesitation. I would love to see that, you know, a level 18, 19, 20 party. I would love to see a wizard drop me to your storm and this thing just look up and be like, what and just keep coming at the table i think that would be so exciting i'd be like oh my god what are we gonna do i would be so sold into that story at that point <laughs> oh yeah and after i finished watching terminator 2 i sat down and i statted out a high cr quicksilver golem based on the t1000 
I was, uh, was going to come to that real quick. Um, but the one more stat that we do need to recognize to talk about is the charisma score. And this one I would actually put fairly low. I'd put this one probably somewhere between a six or an eight, if not lower, especially early on because they lack that initial rules of interaction, especially amongst human, in this case, or, you know, interspecies, because they are mechanical, they are constructs. And so they don't have all of those natural ways of reading facial expressions or things like that. So everything comes off very stolid and kind of halting and broken. So I would make that initial charisma score quite low. For the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator, yes. However, the first thing the T-1000 does in Terminator 2 is it offs a cop, puts on that cop's uniform, and assumes the identity of a police officer, and then goes through and convincingly impersonates a police officer the entire time it is looking for John Connor. Fair point. So, yeah, I guess if we did two different versions, one's going to have a much lower con score, and again, the more advanced would have a higher score? Yes. I still wouldn't make the T-1000's charisma score super high. Okay. I mean, in my write-up, I gave him a 16. That's probably higher than I would actually ultimately go. I would maybe bump that down to like a 12 or a 13, give it a plus one. I could see a 12. Because it did have that natural performative ability. Because I think that had to deal with its ability to assume the form of anything that it sampled the genetic material of. Okay. And then maybe that particular officer was just an asshole. And so people expected it to be an asshole. (laughs) Even though the police officer that the T-1000 took his uniform was not played by the same actor that played the T-1000. I did not notice that. But again, I've not watched this movie in in like a decade. Yes, they, they are two different actors. Interesting. But they did look fairly similar. Gotcha. And, you know, another thing that you conveniently don't see in the movie is that none of the cops that knew the cop whose car and uniform the T-1000 took ever run into the T-1000 and remark on that. (laughs) That'd be a terrible plot hole. Yeah. I mean, that would be something where if we were talking about a TV show that was going to be like in syndication and have 14, 16, 20 episodes, that would probably come up at some point in that run. Right. But where we're working on two and a half hours versus 20 hours, you don't really have the room to do that. (laughs) Right. So we want to bring these. So we've talked about these stats so we can kind of get something on the table. But again, going from very heavy sci-fi, we've got, robotics and intelligence things to something more fantasy-based D&D-wise. You said you've put some thoughts and you, you have a way to bring these to the table? Yeah. Well, specifically the T-1000. Okay. So the way that I have it set up is for a CR-18. Oh, nice. That number might shift a little bit. It is currently a little bit overpowered for the defensive side and a little bit underpowered for the offensive side. That tends to be how my monsters end up turning out anyway, because my route is in third edition where everything is defensively strong and offensively not so much. Okay. So I'm always hesitant to throw big numbers in the damage. I like that. I think the T-1000 is a better fit for the D&D table too, because again, the original Terminator tend to rely more on firearms where the T-1000 had the ability to make those blades and piercing weapons, so it was more melee in its attack modes, so this would fit onto the D&D table a little bit better as well, I think. Yeah, so I had it as a AC-19, natural armor, 210 hit points, speed of 40 feet. Okay, so it's going to move. The whole scene where it's chasing down the car, you know, and it's trying to catch on, so I mean, it's it's running at a good 30, 40 miles per hour. Right. And I did end up finding a couple of different other homebrew Quicksilver golems. One was also a very high CR that had it with a speed of 80. Okay. And then another one that would be much more usable because it was a much lower CR. It was a CR 8, but it had a speed of 60. And speed of 80 would be terrifying and there's no escape from that no, speed. absolutely not but the way i get around this is that i basically give it the mobile feet so it can dash disengage or dodge as a bonus action okay so it can move 40 feet 
action dash 40 feet, bonus action dash 40 feet. So it can move 120 feet around if it really wants to. Okay. Yeah, it can get up and go. I mean, even just, you know, to close the gap and lay the hurt on somebody, it can move 40 bonus action dash 40. And then it still has its multi attack whenever it closes in. Okay, that is terrifying. (laughs) So, yeah, I did that because a lot of these other ones didn't have anything for this Quicksilver Golem to do as a bonus action. And I think that by doing that, by giving it this extra ability, you know, it can dash, disengage or dodge as a bonus action that plays into a lot of what it was able to do in the movie. I mean, because there's one scene in that last fight scene between Robert Patrick and Arnold Schwarzenegger in the foundry where the Terminator slams the T-1000 into a piece of equipment and all it does is basically invert itself. So the T-1000 lands face first into this piece of equipment and as a reaction to it hitting, it just reverses its body to where now its back is against the equipment. Yeah. You know, and yeah. that was a really cool CGI thing. <laughs> that was, that was very impressive. It's amazing again from 91 how well the CGI in that movie oh, holds yeah. up. It's like, yeah, it's, it's yeah. beautifully done. So yeah, I love that. So this thing's going to book. It's going to move fast. Again, it's got some strength for attack. We did not talk about the dexterity, though. We did skip that. What did you want to put the dexterity at? I mean, this is a high CR monster. It's quick. I'm giving it a dex of 20. It's getting a plus okay. five. Okay. On mine, I've got a strength 22, dex 20, con 23. I like it. So it's plus six, plus five, plus six. Okay. This is definitely a high-end monster. I love it. Yeah. And it is very physically imposing. And it should be physically imposing. You don't want to stand toe-to-toe with the T-1000. No, absolutely not. No, this is what your wizards are for. (laughs) Yeah. So for skill proficiencies, I'm giving it proficiency with athletics, perception, performance, and stealth. All perfectly reasonable, especially for the scenes where it can mimic other people's voices and things like that. That fits perfect. Right. Damage vulnerabilities. It's vulnerable to cold and fire. Because of the tanker full of liquid nitrogen and the giant crucible of molten steel. Those are the only things that really, truly affect it long term. Yeah, no, I can definitely buy both of those. So damage resistances. Everything. Well, I made, <laughs> I made it resistant to acid, lightning, thunder. Okay. They are going to affect it. They're not going to affect it as much. And also bludgeoning, piercing, slashing damage from magical sources. Okay. So magical bludgeoning, piercing, slashing, half damage. Okay, I'm with you on that. Damage immunities. Necrotic, poison, and psychic. Okay. The psychic, because it's a construct. Necrotic, because it's a construct. There's nothing organic in the T-1000 to affect with necrotic. Same thing with the poison. There's nothing organic for this to latch onto. And then also immune to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage from non-magical sources that aren't adamantine. Okay, so if you had an adamantine weapon, go for it. Yeah, and that's the whole point of having an adamantine weapon, is because adamantine weapons bypass all of the normal defenses of constructs. Yes. They bypass the whole constructs can't be affected by critical hits. You know, they bypass all of the damage resistance. They bypass damage immunities. Basically, an adamantine weapon gives you the siege property. And I was going to say, you did add immutable form to that, too, if I recall correctly, correct? Yes, I did. So, yeah. So, it is immune to any spell or effect that would alter its form, such as polymorph. Yeah. Because it is a shape changer. I was thinking, too, in older editions, I think it may not have been immutable form, but things like that, they are immune. Like, your slimes and your oozes are immune to critical strikes. Yes. That is an element in third edition of, I believe, undead construct and ooze creature types. Right. And so, again, this thing is going to be tough to push off the table. Oh, yes. So it has a whole smorgasbord of condition immunities. It is immune to being blinded, deafened, exhausted, frightened, grappled, paralyzed, petrified, prone, poisoned, restrained, or unconscious. Ooh. Most of those are just the default construct immunities. 
Yeah. I think I added Frightened to it because for whatever reason, Frightened wasn't on the list. That is very unusual, but okay. The T-1000 isn't afraid of anything. No, it's not. <laughs> it's really not. <laughs> it is the honey badger of the construct world. <laughs> yeah, it don't care. <laughs> so he has a passive detect life. So it is aware of any living creature within 60 feet that is not behind total cover or under the effects of a spell or ability which blocks divination. Okay. Which goes into those enhanced sensors that the Terminators have. Because, you know, you see in the movies, Arnold is able to just scan an area and pick out all of the life forms in that area and able to direct his attacks in such a way as to guarantee that they hit or guarantee that they miss. Yeah, he has an aimbot. He's cheating. <laughs> then magic resistance. He has advantage on saving throws against spells. Okay. Legendary resistance three times a day. Because why not? Because again, <laughs> this is not a lobby. No, this is intended for throwing at high level parties. I think this is probably the highest CR creator we've come up with so far. Um, one of. One of, yeah. See here, we've got magic weapons. So all of its natural weapon attacks are magical. Okay. Mercurial constriction. It can move through any space as narrow as one inch wide without squeezing. All right. Just like a news. I love it. And again, that kind of goes to that scene where he smashes his way in through the uh, the windshield of the helicopter. Or through the... Uh, the first time you really see that is through the barred door in the uh, mental hospital. Yes. And that's the iconic one, I think. That is the iconic scene. For me, it's when he comes in through the windshield of the helicopter. And he just tells the pilot, get out. Yeah, <laughs> the guy just like jumps out of the helicopter. You know, yeah. so like, you can jump out of the helicopter. Or you can deal with this thing that just crawled through your windshield and jumping out yeah. was the safer option. <laughs> yeah. After headbutting through the windshield. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It headbutted through the windshield and then it turned into a puddle and snake crawled through the hole. <laughs> I jump and, out and, of that yeah. helicopter, too. And again, if you've not seen these movies like Ian apparently hadn't before this past no. week, they are definitely worth a watch. They have aged actually reasonably well considering. Right. Yeah. Again, I mentioned mobile, so it can dash, disengage, or dodge as a bonus action. The different vulnerabilities that it has based off of what happened in the film. So if it takes 20 or more points of cold damage in a single attack, its movement speed is reduced by half, and it can't take reactions until the end of its next turn. If it takes 40 or more points of cold damage in a single attack, it is stunned until the end of its next turn, and it has vulnerability to all attacks which deal bludgeoning or thunder damage, even non-magical attacks. Perfect. I love that. That is that is beautifully fit in there. I love it. If it is reduced to zero hit points by cold damage or while stunned by cold damage, it shatters and cannot reform itself until 1d4 rounds after it thaws. Again, beautifully done. I love that. That fits beautifully. And then the only way to destroy a Quicksilver Golem is by reducing it to zero hit points with fire damage. Perfect. You have to kill it with fire. That's the only way to say it. Yep. Sure. Yep. <laughs> so, then, so we... Okay. Oh, oh, there's still more. Oh, okay. But wait, there's more. Wait, there's more. <laughs> it has regeneration. So yes. it regains 25 hit points at the start of its turn. It doesn't function if it takes fire or cold damage. Okay. So firing cold is how you stop its regeneration. Shape changer. It can use an action to polymorph into a form that resembles a medium or small humanoid or object or back to its true form. Aside from its size, the statistics are same in each form. Any equipment it is wearing or carrying can't transform. Okay. And then finally, unusual nature. It doesn't require air, food, drink, or sleep. Perfect sense. That all fits wonderfully. So what kind of scenario do we have that is going to bring a Quicksilver Golem to the table? What is its goal? What was it created for? Is it its own thing? How are we presenting this to our players? I mean, there's a whole bunch of different options for this. Oh, absolutely. This could be a type of inevitable. Yeah, it, inevitable would really fit with this. This could be something that has been sent out by the inevitables to do a thing, a very specific task. Maybe it is an instance where it has to kill a target. Like there is some creature in the multiverse that its very existence is a threat to the multiverse. And so they send one of these things after it. Okay. It could be the result of a wizard who gets their hands on a manual of golems and starts playing around with things like, uh, what, what was the one that I was talking about? Slitherlings? 
No, not slitherlings. That's not what they're called. Excuse me while I go and look this up. Excuse me while I look this up. <laughs> Slithering tracker? Does that sound right? Perhaps. Let me scroll up through our chat log. Conversations, we have them. Yes, we have them on occasion. It happens sometimes. Slithering tracker, yes. Yeah. So slithering trackers are oozes that are able to change form. They basically drain life force from creatures and they paralyze as part of their whole draining life from creatures. And the whole criterion surrounding when you would use a slithering tracker in the older editions of D&D was somebody was wounded in the dungeon. The party goes to get help and they come back and they find a desiccated corpse <laughs> because the slithering yeah. tracker waited for everybody else to leave and then paralyzed and sucked the life out of the wounded party member that got left behind. Okay. I like it. For me, I'm kind of seeing this, especially that you have reminded me of the beautiful things that are the inevitables. And the inevitables come after oath breakers and contract breakers. So I'm thinking, especially if this is a higher level party, that after your party has done, you know, some wonderful adventures and you hit level 15, 16, 17, you come across a well-known paladin that is an oath breaker paladin. And whatever his oath was, he broke it for whatever reason they might have hold. They, maybe they had an alignment changed. Maybe their perceptions of things have done. Maybe they felt betrayed by the people they've made their oaths to, or even a warlock, and they have violated their patron. And this inevitable has now been sent after them, and they have come to your party seeking protection. Yeah, thinking along the lines of the clockwork soul. Yes. You know, let's just say that, for example, you have a warlock whose patron is a root. Or a okay. Marut, you know, a very high-powered inevitable. Okay. And they break that contract. They decide, oh, I'm going to multi-class. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go and be not a warlock anymore. That, yeah, this would be something that they would send after such an individual. Yes, absolutely. And again, you can either send it after a PC, but I think sending it after an NPC seeking the party's protection would make it less... Depending on how your players go, this way your your players feel less targeted. Because again, if this was an inevitable and it was after a specific party member, it would target that party member to the exclusion of the other party members generally. So that would be a harder thing to feel out, though very doable as well. It would depend on how close your party was as they played. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, this could be an instance where because it is able to impersonate another individual. It could, with some clever backroom dealings with your other players, it could assume the form of one of your other players. Oh, you have that one player that misses two or three weeks in a row at a time. This would be a great way to fit that in. Yeah, and you're just like, well, they have to go and do something with their real life for a while. So they've asked me to, as the DM to run their character for them. Yep. And that's where the swap happened. And so whenever they get to come back, their character just walks in and now there's two of them. But which one has the goatee? <laughs> no, I think this can be a lot of fun on the table. There is a lot you can do with this. Again, you could take this Quicksilver Golem that we have that is very high level. You could work your way up with some lower levels and kind of build up to it. You could introduce it, like I said, as a late adventure thing as your party gets higher levels. But I think something like this, just as a, this is definitely a big target to kind of aspire to, to get your party at. This is not something they're going to meet, fight, and win at first. This thing is going to be sheer terror on the table. Oh, yes. Yeah. Do not throw this at lower level parties, please. <laughs> yeah. If you throw this even at a moderately high, again, level 15, 16, they're, they're probably going to fight and need to take a strategic retreat. Yeah, I mean, it also depends on their loadout. If they have yeah. two or three individuals capable of dishing out oh, cold no, and fire damage. Right. But otherwise, yeah, it's it's going to be a bad time. But this is definitely something I could see again, kind of that would constantly kind of pursue and harass the party. And especially if your party kind of gets bogged up and they start losing direction, this thing can kind of pop up and prod and kind of get that party up and moving again, which sometimes you need in storytelling. Yeah. And another thing that I because I'm getting sidetracked, another thing that I really like about this one is that with its shape changing ability, it can turn itself into an inanimate object. Mm -hmm. 
which means that, you know, it is the ultimate final form of a mimic. Oh, oh, yes. You're you sir are correct. Holy crap. Because, you know, it could be hiding as this decorative suit of armor in the hallway or this stone bust or, you know, a vase or the floor or the floor. It can literally be the floor. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. So are we going to try to flesh this one out and put it up on our Patreon? I'm going to try to. Excellent. I'm a little bit behind schedule with all of that at the moment. But I recently have some extra downtime, so maybe I'll be able to get onto that here in the next little bit. Huzzah. There's one other thing that I really wanted to talk about with my Quicksilver Golem that I made. Oh, please. Because I gave it a reaction. Okay. Based on a couple of scenes that happened in the movie, Bind Weapon. When it's struck by a melee weapon attack, it may attempt to form its body around the weapon, binding it within its body. The attacking creature must succeed on a DC-20 athletics check and on a failure the weapon becomes stuck in the golem's body nice i love it it may use this reaction as many times as it chooses so long as it has fewer than two weapons bound in its body okay i love it so it can only bind two at a time but as long as it doesn't have two stuck in its body it can just keep trying to rip your weapon away from you every time you hit it yeah I love it. This is definitely it's going to be the sort of monster that is going to taunt your martial classes by ignoring them. Yes, that's because it's going to make that beeline for the casters, for the uh, individuals that have the powerful spells that can kill it. Yes, it's going to go straight for the sorcerer and the wizard. That's going to kill the clothies. (laughs) Yeah, it is going to kill the squishy casters. And then it's going to kill the cleric. And then it's going to smash the barbarian and your fighter. And then it's going to walk away laughing. Well, it's going to let the barbarian break itself upon yeah. him. Yes. Yeah. I love this. I can't wait to see this on the table. <laughs> well, you're going to have to wait a little bit. We just started. You're only level three. I know. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think we've been going for a while now. Yeah. And so we should probably wrap things up. Yeah. Like I said, this has a lot of potential. I think this can be a really super exciting photo to have on the table. And I think given the party and how the DM wants to play it, I think it can be super exciting too. So thank you everybody for listening to me rattle on about a 30 year old movie that I finally watched. <laughs> uh, if you have any comments, suggestions or ideas, please send us an email under taste at gmail.com, or you can drop a message through the smoldering mail slot into our inbox over at UCT homebrew over on Twitter we are finally on Blue Sky. Huzzah! Lee Wanika was able to hook me up with a Blue Sky invite uh, after our last episode. So we are now on Blue Sky. So under common taste at uh, bsky.social, I think is how you find that one. So yeah, we are on Blue Sky now. In addition to Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, and Mastodon. So I'm slowly working on shifting my attention away from the platform formerly known as Twitter and onto Blue Sky. It is time. It seems like there are a lot of TTRPGers that have already made it over there and we're trying to rebuild the community over there. Great. So I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, Uh, come join us there again. We'd love the community. And yeah, definitely. We are also on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommon taste. That's where our write ups go. I'm working on some stuff. As I said, I recently came into an abundance of downtime. <laughs> We're also on itch, undercommontaste.itch.io. That's where you can find our liminal horror adventure beneath the lake or my solo RPG forever home and soon to be our first published D&D adventure. Huzzah. Still codename Kettle Run. That is not the final title. I don't think we've settled 100% on what the final title is going to be, but it is not going to be Kettle Run. That's going to be a different adventure later. Yes. The name was too good. Yeah. We have a better idea for the name. So anyway, getting distracted. It happens. That happens. And finally, we are on Discord. You can find a link to the Discord in our show notes. We'd love to have you come over and chat with us. If this is your first time listening to our podcast, welcome. We're so glad you found us. You can find our other podcasts at whatever podcaster you use. We're pretty much everywhere. We're on Apple, Google, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify. Um, also, you can come talk to us, interact with us on TikTok as well. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We love our listener interactions. And if you give us a rate and review, this helps us know what you want to hear more of and increases our visibility. Stay safe, everybody. And we will see you all again in two weeks.
Happy gaming. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash David Sutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe and we'll see you then.